Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 221. Today is Sunday the 29th of January 2017. And this interview is with Rod Banner, who founded and built Banner Corporation to the largest B2B agency in Europe before selling it to WPP. A man of great renown and influence in the UK, Rod is a fellow Tech London advocate, agent of change at 3LA, and an angel investor in a host of tech startups. In this conversation, we look at the challenges of brand building in this new tech world, the opportunities in marketing and ad tech. We discuss the future of ad agencies, as well as the need to make a difference. A renaissance madman. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today I have a special guest. Uh, I have many guests who are special, but Rod is someone I really appreciate. And I'm hoping you all are going to enjoy. So Rod Banner, welcome to the show. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what's your mindset these days, Rod? Oh, how exciting is that? Well, firstly, I'm flattered and honored that you should speak of me in such positive terms. But um, I am really... Uh, a hard-ask marketer, I suppose, is the terrible truth. I, I grew up in the world of advertising, and I was poisoned or enthralled by working with customers who were all technology companies. So for about 20-odd years, we did nothing but to try and promote the fortunes of tech firms. And during that period of my life, the, um, the tech world was possibly more vibrant than ever um, because there was the birth of the interweb. So I guess right now I find um, my, my skill set, my talent falls between being a technologist and being a communicator. Um, there are a lot of people who um, are one or the other but I find myself a bit like a babel fish, often translating technology and its benefits into normal speak so that normal people can see precisely how exciting the potential of those new technologies is. I mean, tech is built by engineers who find it difficult speaking even in sentences. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so I enjoy the translating and I enjoy um, actually getting my own head around the impact of technology. I have one of the challenges I have is uh, shiny object syndrome. So SOS. Uh, something new. <laughs> yes. So anything new, um, it, it always seems to be more exciting than the same thing um, only two or three days later well it's it strikes me rod that if you don't have the desire for the new then you're going to stick with your fountain pen yeah that's absolutely right the the, the challenge however is <clears throat> and i'm sure Minter, you'd understand this is that quite often the new thing seems like it's going to be a radical change um i i i guess there are lots of technological inventions that come and then they they go, but I I find it fascinating that we still buy fountain pens and we cherish them and we enjoy the engagement of a fountain pen with a beautiful piece of paper. At the same time, we capture our thoughts on our phones, on our pads, on our laptops, and probably fifteen other devices that I haven't figured out. So there's this kind of plethora of opportunities technology brings, and with it comes confusion. Where did I leave that note? And then equally, for example, with the messaging platforms that we're all drowning in, I, I don't know if you feel this way. I have a message from someone. I know it's there, but is it on yeah. Skype? Where did it go? <laughs> <laughs> you know, which platform did I leave it on? Um, so yeah, technology 
which I love, does come with associated challenges that I don't yeah, love. To, just to uh, riff on your first point, which is this notion of technologist and communication, it kind of makes me feel that in this tech world or, or online world, we are having this pendulumness between tech and humanity. Let's say that the fountain pen is technology of sorts, but it, it sort of represents old Luddite pre-online and the need for humanity, that, that ink that flows out from the nib uh, on, a, on a piece of paper that you send via the post office. And yet you've got technology on the other side and you have e-commerce companies in the parallel world that are now having to create online, uh, offline stores to try and do offline marketing the old-fashioned way in order to drive people into the stores online. So that this, what you are, is basically this combination of geek or technologist plus communication humanity. Well, <clears throat> I think that we all are. I, I'm not trying to sort of put myself in a in a discreet or an elitist camp, but I, I, I believe that we are all wrestling with the, the onrush of technology and sometimes our passion for it um, kind of um, obfuscates the utilization factor. Um, that's a sort of complex way of trying to describe the fact that I can be very passionate about a piece of technology and what it could bring. But if I sit alone trying to communicate with a whole range of people who aren't adopting it, I, uh, um, I'm going to feel very frustrated. Very I, I, <clears throat> and this is one of the, the fascinating things about social and the um, mass adoption of platforms like Facebook. Um, there are always going to be people who think that Facebook is irritating and they'd like to be off it. And some people that I know have uh, written a Facebook will and checked out, disconnected from Facebook, only to find that it's really difficult to communicate to friends uh, as they did without the utility that Facebook provides. So I, I, I guess... There is a kind of continuum between technologies that the world has adopted, mobile phones, texting, things which we just take for granted that are wrapped into the way we live, and new technologies which might be superior but aren't necessarily going to be so effective in enhancing our lives. Yeah, it seems that when you look at, uh, for example, how Google operates, they, they throw things out. Some things stick, some things don't. And, and so you can quickly try something, then you end up going down a wrong garden path because they're going to sunset it within 12 months because it didn't fly. <laughs> and then yeah. it just adds to the confusion. So we're in this constant state of, well, is this something worthwhile going on to and spending some time getting used to it and learning the vocabulary uh, setting it up, getting all my friends connected into it or not. And, and it's just a, a constant mishmash. And then where does the dust settle? Well, the dust isn't going to settle anytime soon, I think is where it comes down to. That's such an important point, Minter. And I, I believe that it, even with apps and web services that you're familiar with, one of the biggest challenges comes that those people at the front end of the development of these products are always enhancing, always adding features and functions, always trying to change the user experience for the better. But if you're an intermittent user and you go back to the same product yeah. and find that someone's potentially enhanced it, your own journey, your own experience may not be enhanced at all because you were used to the way it worked and now you're having to relearn the thing again from scratch. I don't believe that we sort of study sufficiently hard the impact of regular iterative change on consumer experience because I think it's detrimental often, more so than people believe. Yeah, I worked for L'Oreal for 16 years, as you know, and, and uh, one of the things we like to do was new. New, as a marketer, sells. And uh, so we would be constantly revising. And let's say we might have changed an ingredient to make it somewhat better. 
you know, maybe less tangling of the hair. And so we'd create a new product and we'd change the packaging or whatever, and we'd leave the consumer who liked the old product behind. And they would have no idea of the transition. Well, no, I like the old one and the new ones, I know, where is it? And, and they don't recognize it. And so people get lost even in, in a non-digital world in new as well. Yeah, that's, that's actually very true, um, particularly with food products. Um, yeah, I used to like, you know, if you like a certain spaghetti sauce or something like that, and then all of a sudden, uh, ragoni or whatever they call it <laughs> has changed yeah. and, and you're, you're lost again. Um, yeah. uh, Rod, I wanted to uh, chat with you about mad tech because that is something that you are very keen on and know so much about mad tech as in marketing and advertising technology. So all this is the, I would say, very trendy material these days in if you read what's going on in in the different marketing magazines or online or offline what's your take on mad tech these days well um i think it's possibly worth just saying how marketing has evolved over uh i'd say probably the last 10 years um of course the world of advertising was always really the the big daddy of um, of marketing communications. If you had budget and you could throw enough money at some particular um, product or service, you could get it into the minds of people in a way that they could choose whether they wanted to buy it. Um, over the last 10 years, you've seen the proliferation of media. You've seen also, I think, the erosion of the authority of media. And that's come in part because media itself made the big mistake of not charging often for access to great content. They, they greeted the rise of the web foolishly. Um, and in retrospect, I'm sure they would have done something different by giving away content, because that meant that advertising became um, much, much more difficult to charge for. It meant that there were more opportunities to advertise. So advertising ultimately was less impactful. At the same time, most people in the first world have come to realize that advertising is uh, not a great expression of authenticity. Um, it's usually uh, some kind of, of either distortion of the facts or um, using trickery in some way to emotionally tie you to a product that doesn't necessarily deliver what it claims it does. Hence the low so, uh, trust factor that people have of marketers. Correct. So advertising has become less and less effective and more and more irritating. Um, as we move online, you see this in survey after survey, uh, that wherever advertising is likely to pop up, people ignore it. And whilst we've seen fantastically effective pushback by um, the more inter interesting um, media types, and you, by this I'm talking about Facebook particularly, where where messages are woven into a timeline in a way that doesn't feel like it's advertising, um, in some way one gets a greater engagement. But advertising in the old sense, where there was, you know, headlines and images and body copy, and then there was a call to action. This kind of world has has just diminished in stature. At the same time, we're seeing rise in the amount of data that people leave all over the place, some of it willingly and uh, stuff that they know they're leaving and in some cases data that's being left and collected that nobody really understands except the marketers and those people trying to target specific and discrete audiences. So marketing has become much more scientific and it, it's... Um, a remarkable exercise that I wholeheartedly recommend to any marketer, be they uh, a digital marketer or just uh, mum and pop kind of companies selling 
to any end consumer that they spend some time playing with, if not utilizing, um, Facebook's ad buying platform. And you start to realize how sophisticated it can be in targeting specific geographies or um, ethnicities or pretty much any demographic. Um, but much more important, you start to realize that advertising where uh, well-paid, uh, intellectually capable people could argue as to whether or not their particular take on your marketing requirements would be effective, this is gone. And you can try and find for yourself the programs that are going to work most um, impactfully. And I, I guess um, that that's that is, some, is something that an entire industry has now risen from, the, the notion of, of um, studying data, studying behavioral impact, um, attempting to work out how specific offers uh, work against others. Um, this is now uh, marketing as a science more than marketing as an art. Doesn't right. mean to say that creativity isn't still part of the mix, but as an industry uh, where your creativity could be shoehorned into mass exposure with very small number of media selections, that um, that way of impacting general popular thinking is gone, and it won't come back anytime soon. Well, yeah, Rod, I think that in, in the, uh, the marketing space, you've got so many choices. And as a consumer, you're being buffeted and seeing so many different messages. It sort of ends up being hard almost to know what is effective because it is still a, a mixture of signs and interactions that gets me to actually make the final purchase. And as much as we're thinking it's a science, as you're saying, Rod, it strikes me that this notion of creativity and humanity is being stripped out. Yeah, yeah I think it definitely is. Um, the, the piece that pulls the humanity back in is the way that we respond to marketing messages. Um, it, it would seem that a marketing message coming from a company that's got a product to sell is much less effective than a marketing message coming from a member of your peer group. So uh, the idea of um, stoking uh, equivalent, I suppose, of that promoter score where, where somebody has experienced something that they've really enjoyed and that they share that experience with their community, uh, which, of course, is something that was uh, impossible to do before the rise of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I went to a great restaurant and really enjoyed it, am I going to come home and write a series of postcards and send them to all my friends? Probably not. But putting a post on, on my Facebook timeline um, about how much I enjoy a specific restaurant, um, this is becoming uh, possibly the most impactful way of marketing. And it's not just simple consumer products it's also very sophisticated technological products too so at the same time rod if you have someone who's reacting like that as you say reinserting the humanity the issue is on the company side figuring out how to operate and interreact uh with at that scale because is you know the, the it seems to me that desire is well how can we be more efficient in our business Oh, ad tech, marketing tech, uh, automated tech, uh, chatbots is the solution. Yeah, I think, and I believe it is the only way that um, online marketing will move into another chapter is when the chatbot or any type of interactive um, discussion can be automated um, that that's going to be a game changer. It's still not really there. Uh, we're seeing a lot of it in. Um, I, I, I've got a thread which perhaps we can get to later about um, the idea of creating digital online counsellors, uh, where 
it's it's relatively easy to do counseling where you're simply asking people to expand on problems that they may be suffering from in product it's slightly more complex because you need to convey a series of feature benefits and putting that into a conversation without it feeling ridiculous is what has been the challenge of of the age for salesmen across the world um I think if you if you look at marketing and you go back, uh, I think it was possibly David Ogilvy, somebody who said that marketing is a posh word for selling. If you if you think of marketing as um, as as a way of forging a conversational engagement, then like every conversational engagement, you need to know some something about the other person. You need to ask them questions. You need to understand their problems and you need to be able to relate to those problems. And all that needs to happen before you start trying to sell them a solution. If you sell them a solution before you know that their problems, it feels ugly. But if you can relate and understand and most importantly, empathize with an individual's plight, you know, then then you stand a much better chance of diverting their attention into buying your stuff. Yes, yeah, so Rod, in, in uh, the end of the day, you, you know, the notion of having an artificial intelligence that has the capability to empathize would be what the Valhalla of this is. Uh, I, but I, you know, I think that perhaps it's going to be un, unimaginable a world where we're or at least in the in the short term, where we are only where we're interacting with robots, and we know they are, and we're happy with it. I, I don't know. Do you know the um, Do you know the company, the North Face? Yeah, but the, you know, so with the North Face, what they have, if they've injected on the site, you come in, you don't need to log in, give away who you are. I type in my 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 name, my address. You go in, and it asks you a series of questions. It's driven by IBM Watson, and the questions will say, um, "What are you looking for?" And you, you say, well, I, I need a jacket because I'm going skiing next week at this great event called Snowball. And, uh, okay, uh, and where are you skiing? What's in, I don't know, Mijev. Uh And when are you going? I'm going on the 24th. Okay, so it looks like the forecast says you're going to need minus 10 to minus 15 type of jacket. Are you a male or a female fa- male? Okay, and um, what's your favorite color? Blue. And then it, can, it will go into its e-commerce site and then pull out all the jackets that are minus 10 to minus 15 blue that will uh, be um, ski jackets for you. So it, it, it provides you some sort of better understanding to your point of questions of who you are, but it doesn't have any empathy and it doesn't have any of those sort of human surprise elements or imperfections, I would say, <laughs> that we tend to thrive on as individuals? Well, I, I, I guess if you look where um, those types of interactions have come from, and you look at how much more sophisticated they are now to where they were five years ago, I don't think empathy is going to be that difficult to mm. create. I, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to be Orwellian about it. I, I just think it's inevitable that some more sophistication um, can be woven into a, a typical digital engagement. I mean, look at how voice has moved forward um, since the birth of Siri. Yeah. Um, you know, CES this year was just crammed with the Echo technology from Amazon, and it's it's pretty good. Um, but what will it be like in two years' time when you're talking to some useful person? I mean, <laughs> I was having a similar conversation the other day with a guy who said that Echo was more useful than his intern, and that, that that was quite shocking, particularly as his intern was quite charming and uh, I think pretty bright. But more important, I, I suppose, it was the fact that you could see a future where um, an inanimate bot served a very useful function, both you know personally and in the context of a business. 
All right. Um, so, so then, Ro, what about uh, agencies? Um, if 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 we can go to bots that are clever enough to do all this, what role does it do? Agent, what do? How do you see agencies playing out in all this? I'm very gloomy about the future of agencies. Um, there was a time when being inside an agency uh, it felt that you were connected to the most creative minds on the planet, even though the output was often advertising as opposed to something really useful. Um, the whole creative industry seemed to have a pinnacle at the at the ad industry, the ad industry, because this was where the money was, and most importantly, this was where the strategy was. You, you sat in an agency at the at the high table with your clients. You know, you were at the strategic high table. You were able to set offers. You were able to create products you were able to impact channels of distribution and you were able to tell the entire story to all the customers who that client would ever sell to. These days, all of that has gone and agencies are no longer at that strategic table. They are they're being commodified to the point where they're procured. They are constantly held up as the gating factor uh, when it comes to studying data in real time because, you know, they are part of the business. So I look at and work with pure digital companies. They don't have agencies and they have no wish to have agencies. They want to have the talent that agencies used to sell to them woven deep in the fabric of the business. And I think that's going to be a trend that will pervade old school businesses too. And you would recommend that? I think if you can attract the right people and you can build a sufficient um, interweaving of the cultural requirements of creative people into uh, more procedural um, cultures that are found in some organizations, it's the best solution. It's funny you say that because, so I worked at L'Oreal and in France, the leitmotif was we used our advertising agencies to do all our, our brand identity and our marketing campaigns and, and uh, do the shoots and all that. When I got to the States uh, and the brand I was running was Redken, we had an in-house creative and of course, this changes dramatically your relationship with your creative. Um, you guys, you, you know, as a group are the guardians of the brand, as opposed to usually what L'Oreal likes to do, which is to, to delegate the guardian of the brand to the agency, because amongst other things, the people in the company are constantly rotating from one brand to another. Mm-hmm. So the only guardian of the brand then becomes the, the agency uh, on record whose role is to keep some kind of unity through the years and through the promotions. I, I wonder if, if then this model of having an in-house creative is, is, is basically what you're saying is the better one. But then the difference being compared to what we used to do, which have it even much more woven into the business, as you say. I think you've really got to start questioning what is creativity inside an organization. Um, you know, there needs to be creativity across all aspects of a business. It's not just about the marketing collateral and the expressions of the brand, yeah. but it's also about product. And, you know, new product development requires intense creativity. I think if you disconnect new product development from the sharp end of your own marketing initiatives, you're missing the trick or the best trick. I, I <clears throat> worked on the development of various things in the past um, that came from circumstances. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, we launched Bailey's Irish Cream. Yeah. Bailey's, Bailey's was driven by um, an excess of 
Irish cream and Irish whiskey and how these two things could be combined into some kind of product simply because there was a, uh, a good opportunity to buy it cost effectively. And, uh, you know, that that's one example. But this happens a lot in tech where a new technological development comes out. Then how can we use this? How can we do this? Um, make a product out of it. I, I think increasingly as we're studying um, consumer behaviors and there's more uh, focus on behavioral economics, we're reaching the point where the behaviors will drive the, um, the, the product development much more than they have in the past. So you kind of know what people want and you go out and build it. So there's no need to continually refine and test. You've got an audience defined. You've got a need defined. You just have to build the best product. And I, I, I fear that we've seen a great example of this is, is the sort of the changing fortunes of Apple Computer, where there was, there was some kind of fierce and potentially crazy people who had ideas that they were convinced customers would buy and they would build, and customers often did buy these products. Now we're seeing iterative change in Apple's products. We're not seeing, um, I believe, true understanding of what customers are trying to, to do, potential customers might want, we're seeing how we can improve the product with small features and small benefits. In some cases, making customers' lives more complicated. Mm. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I, I think that the creativity that we used to buy from agencies, which was sparkling and in some cases disconnected from our, uh, the business so that it could be more ingenious and more impactful, has to be rooted right inside the organization. Hmm. I hear you. Uh, so, um, Rod, I want to finish the last uh, segment, if, if it's okay with everybody, on another version of MAD, as we were laughing beforehand, which is Make a Difference MAD. And uh, that's something else that you hold uh, awfully dear. When one is trying to add this in, when you are approaching, on, you're on a number of boards and uh, the conversation must come up. Give us an idea of how how important making a difference is to brand marketing in your mind. And secondly, how would you instill it, implement it, install it, or at least go about starting to do it? Because we're not going to have another two hours on the topic. Because <laughs> uh, I think it's it's an interesting challenge for many companies. It certainly is. I, th I think that we've seen the rise of purpose, purpose-based businesses, um, uh, what uh, I think we're all drawn to. Um, having a sense of purpose um, has a great deal going for it, not simply because um, it's easier to tell a story if you know there's uh, something authentic and meaningful about the whole ambition of the organization, but also having purpose tends to bring the best out of employees and suppliers. You know, there's a lot of statistics kicking around about the fact that most employees in large organizations particularly are totally disengaged from their job. You know, 80% or the very high numbers of disengagement, which really means that people go into work, they don't really like what they're doing, they don't really want to be doing it. They pass the day as best they can, um, surviving the political greasy pole um, because they have a mortgage to pay or they have family to feed. And they suffer uh, um, un unpleasantly, whereas if you see an organization which has real purpose, real meaning, that's making a difference, that everyone feels they're contributing to, there's, there's an attraction about working in these organizations that particularly young people prioritize in the job selection. There's also a sort of vibrance and, and excitement 
that by being able to measure milestones towards making um, something unpleasant go away for society, um, they, they, these things are truly motivational. And I believe we're all going to be drawn much more into that type of activity in the future. So I have two uh, postulates. The first is that the, the, the little voice inside my head is when one talks about adding purpose, one doesn't get as big a paycheck. So I can think of NGOs. If you go work for Patagonia, they are a beautiful purpose-led company, but you don't get paid so much. And, uh, you know, non-for-profits, you're solving the world's problems. Being a teacher, gosh, you're educating the world and all the youngsters and the talent for the future, but you don't get paid the most. A lot of meaningful jobs seem to be equated with the lower end of the pay scale. Um, well, I don't have a, a huge amount of empirical data to support that. I, I kind of get where you're coming from. But I would say that um, there are lots of organizations which do have purpose woven into their construct that seem to be financially pretty sorted. Um, you know, if you look at companies like Amazon and you look at companies like Uber who have made it their mission in the first case to be able to deliver products of your choosing as quickly as possible into the hands of people who want to buy them, yeah, that, that, that has driven Amazon to build this phenomenal logistical engine. And Uber is trying to utilize transport in a more effective way. And that both of those companies get a lot of stick for not necessarily being particularly supportive of all of their staff. But the customers who they work with are possibly getting the real benefit of their purpose. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm not altogether sure you can look at it simply from from the kind of NGO perspective. Of course. And I'm only being provocative, Rod, you understand. But at the end of the day, <laughs> um, you know, Amazon, from the number of people that I have uh, anecdotally heard, they don't feel like they get paid the best, have the best working conditions. Uber, who have moved from 20 to 25% to take away commission from uh, the, their drivers, uh, quite an important part of that concept. Um, you wonder how... Of course, because at the end of the day, what I want, which is my second point which is to equate purpose with shareholder return. Because on, yeah. the, on the one hand, you like, if I go work for some missionary kind of company, well, don't expect to get paid a lot. On the other hand, uh, how can I go to the shareholders and say, listen, we've just uh, allocated 12% of our budget for next year for this mission down to build schools in Nepal. Mm -hmm. And shareholders typically today are not extremely... <laughs> gratified. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think they shouldn't be either, by the way. I, I mean, uh, th th this uh, ladders up to a far more important content topic, which is that businesses, for the last 50 years, businesses have been asked to produce more for less. It's always about efficiency. If you, if if you're responding to shareholders, you you want to be able to make more, and you want to make the make that stuff for less. And, and unfortunately, we're living in. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I believe it, it was Clayton Christensen who who started this conversation. Um, but we are being asked to make more or deliver more, and we're expected to to do it for less less money or less people are engaged in the production of whatever it is that we're doing. Well, that's been fine. Whilst automation has enabled us to, to, to do that, uh, manufacturing uh, as opposed to using people's hands to do manufacturing, use a machine, you can cut the actual cost. And what's happened in more recent times is that we've run out of that type of mechanization. Now what's happening is we're asking people to do more for less. People like you and me. That's why we tend to have the office in our 
smartphone in our pocket why we work at weekends where we wake up in the middle of the night and we start responding to emails. So there's a massive fundamental uh, change which is going on here, which is having massively damaging impact on society. So I think that when you're talking about purpose within side business and how shareholders are reacting to adding something meretricious to a, a, a business, that they're only really measuring on return on investment or return on their own shareholding. You know, this is something that society needs to respond to. And I believe it will. You kind of get the feeling that companies need to not just pay lip service to employee satisfaction and engagement, but uh, employee health. Most definitely they do. Uh, because they won't be able to hire people, and you're seeing that across the across the pond. But you know, uh, for those people who are advocating mindfulness as a kind of salve to an unpleasant business environment, and you're seeing organisations, <laughs> comically, I think, uh, taking mindfulness up, they tend to say, well, we've we've just hmm. engaged a mindfulness coach and we'd love to help you be more mindful. But the, the mindfulness courses tend to start an hour before you would typically turn up to the office. So hmm. here is that having more pressure uh, at the same time as trying to leave it. I mean, we, we have to take a new view of what the new business agenda should be. And I think that Driving profitability, which has been the argument for business in the past, will actually not be the only driver for business. There will be others, and they will be to do with making the world a better place or developing services that make people's lives slightly more delightful without necessarily being... Um, you know, without prioritizing shareholder return. Well, I think that you, people like you uh, and, are, are, and I have a have a mission, which is to help. On the one hand, shareholders understand that there is a benefit in there. Of course, you know, usually we need to show money or or figures for that to be actually fly. But we also need to make sure that the CEO of the of the organization is onboarding and is leading the charge with regard to that purpose or whatever that mission might be and yeah. and also is exemplifying and, and leading by in behavior in mindfulness and and is doing it themselves and believes it and not just sort of tick the box here listen i gave them the mindfulness class yeah absolutely right um yeah you can't think that People on your payroll are are bots because they're not. They're, they're very precious. They're very important, and much more importantly, I would say, if they're stimulated and they're given a voice and they're given sufficient insight and information into where the company is going, so they're being led properly, they will be much more useful inside that organization. So um, this goes back rather neatly to our original conversation about purpose um, impacting um, any individual either inside or outside the business. Um, shareholders will have to come to terms with the fact that the business itself will be more effective if the business serves a useful purpose in society and it doesn't cause a huge amount of uh, damage to its staff in so doing. I have um, a question and uh, a, a plug. So a friend of mine is out in California at Stanford and he's called Ian Monroe and he's leading a development f or fund, sorry, whose uh, mission is to identify and invest in companies that have uh, authentic, sustainable development programs. 
and um, and I, I kind of feel where is the is there is there maybe Rod, you know of one a fund that uh, selects companies with authentic purpose. I'm not too sure that there is one defined in that way, but we're seeing a lot of funds creeping up that are investing in organizations that have societal benefits. Um, right, the, the, the three Ps. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe you and I need to go offline and start a, start a new fund. <laughs> just, just the P for purpose. <laughs> All right, listen, Rod, I know that we I didn't get a chance to talk about JoyTech, but maybe that'll be the topic of another, another, um, another podcast, unless you wanted to say something, a last quip on that one before we close off. Um, well, I'd love to say something about it, but I'd also really like to do it as a bigger podcast. Let's do that. In, just in essence, what, what we're attempting to do well, I think relates to some of the things we've spoken about already here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have s- struggled to uh, do useful things to help uh, the, ch- the terrible challenges of mental health that seem to beset society. Um, I've, I've been engaged in mindfulness. Um, I'm fascinated to learn more about food tech. And it suddenly hit me that there is a big deficit that all of these things somehow have impact on. And that deficit across society is the diminution of human joy. You know, I'm not talking with the word joy of fun, humor, just talking about the fact that there are moments when one wakes up and just loves life. And you see it in children who don't consider themselves weighed down by the challenges that um, many many people in workplace have there is just joy at the silliest of things and joy in the sun being out and joy in just human experience we have squashed it and my 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 mission with joy tech is to see if it's possible to find technology and solutions that give humanity uh, something else uh, besides the model that they're all having to suck up right now that reconnects us with that inherent desire to live a better, more joyful life. Um, It's really impactful and I, I look forward to the opportunity of expanding on how this impacts education, the political system, um, family, our, uh, our uh, addiction to um, traditional technology platforms that actually don't seem to bring us a lot of joy. Mm. So I, I'll, I'll save I'll save that up for some other opportunity. Let's book that in right after this call, Rod. Um, Rod, how can best people uh, get in touch with you, or how should I frame that better? How can people best get in touch with you? What's the best way to follow you? What's the best way you like to, to be in touch, uh, communicate with people? Well, I'm, pr- I'm pretty um, available on social media platforms, but um, and, and unless you're just trying to spam me with irritating stuff, you can reach me on my email, uh, which is simply rod at banner.net. Beautiful. Well, I'll put in your old Twitter, Twitter handle because you're out there on social. We all know that. Rod, love having you on the show. As, as one can feel, we could have uh, spent a few more hours. So uh, catch, catch us on the next trip. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Rod. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
Ridges in our palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care about the Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.